And it's impossible really to predict the future, to make decisions without telling ourselves stories internally. But there's that that burden that we have, I think, from contemporary thinking, from our worries about diversity um, and our attempts to be more open, that we can tell the wrong stories about people and that we project all the time um, and that a lot of our storytelling is faulty. Uh, so those tactics to me, like the know yourself, don't project that onto someone else. Um, when you've gone too far, kind of pull yourself back in, play again, play a different story. We're really like that contemporary nervousness about storytelling and what it does for us politically. Welcome to the live drop. I'm talking to Helen Banner. Her play Intelligence is running now at the New York Theatre Workshop. Helen studied law at Cambridge, went to work as a well-meaning bureaucrat for the British government until changes in the world order in the 90s and a controversial piece of theatre inspired her to pursue a very dangerous thing, to be a playwright and a woman expressing her opinions into the world. We talk about her research into diplomacy, from the Good Friday Agreement with the architect George Mitchell to end hostilities in Northern Ireland, to the work of Richard Holbrook in Bosnia and the Middle East. Diplomats in her play use role-playing to gain insight into negotiations with violent men. The main character suggests five tactics to better perceive and experience others while avoiding the trappings of code-switching. With her play, Intelligence, Helen sought to write a global play, putting as much of the world as possible into a black-box theater. She offers a lot to think about in a 50-minute interview as well. Begin transmission now. Helen Banner, thank you for being on the live drop. Oh, well, thank you so much for asking me to join you. Yeah, you're, you're in New York. Um, you've written and developed and staged this play called Intelligence. And if I could read a little bit about it from the website, it's about uh, Sarah McIntyre, presidential appointee, parachutes into the Foreign Service, has been assigned two wary young diplomats to develop her pet project, uh, I love this. New training scenarios for the resolution of intractable global situations. The three begin to role play, led by a charismatic woman experienced in persuading men to lay down arms. She's terrifying, by the way. Suddenly, a rebel group lashes out in a distant country, destroying the tenuous priest. This tenuous peace, not priest. Say. Recently negotiated by McIntyre, the women's role playing becomes increasingly charged, pushing it deeper into the bodies and minds of violent insurgents. Meanwhile, as Washington undergoes its own regime change, their work becomes active weaponry for Sarah's political enemies. This play is developed by you, director Jess Chase. It pulls the audience into a Washington, D.C. basement conference room for an intense experience of how we code and decode others and ourselves through our imaginations. That's fascinating. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I get it. This play really brought up a, a lot of questions for me. I'm an actor as well. Uh, what was your... Was there some some playwrights say, oh, I, I wrote this or I investigated this because I had I wanted to know something. I was just wondering, was there was there a question that you wanted to answer or what was your inspiration to write and develop this? I, I don't think there is a straightforward, neat answer, because I think it's very much linked to my own history and how I got to playwriting. Um, and also my sense, and I expect what a lot of other people are experiencing as well at the moment, of feeling like there's a massive change in international affairs, feeling like the, the, the temperature 
of diplomacy is changing around me and the temperature of the countries I'm connected to, um, the UK with Brexit and the US with the new administration. Um, and I think it started for me a long, long time ago at a point where I decided not to become a playwright. Um, and in 1995, I was thinking about what I would do at university. Mm -hmm. And it's about the point that a play called Blasted came out by Sarah Kane, uh, which uh, has gone on to be a classic, uh, really important play that's revived a lot. And it was about the Bosnian War and the atrocities that were happening. Uh, and this play was absolutely panned when it came out and panned in a way that really uh, disturbed me. So it's a play about a journalist, Ian, who meets his lover, um, a younger girl in a hotel room and tries to persuade her to have sex, then rapes her. And then the next act, uh, a civil war breaks out outside the hotel. And it, it is an unspeakably brutal play. It's a real tough read on the play on the page and really hard to watch. Um, but for me, it was kind of a critical uh, look at, at something that was really surprising in, in the mid-90s because the, the Bosnian conflict really disrupted a narrative about Europe that we were post-Berlin, uh, post the Berlin Wall falling. Right. I thought we won the Cold War. Yeah, why are they yeah. still arguing over there? They're free. Yeah. Right? And also the European Union was expanding. So for there to be genocide again on European soil was really disturbing and it felt like a very important topic for a play. But the reception she got was that it was naive tosh, um, that it had no message. It's tosh, uh, garbage. Yeah. Tosh. Like an English term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that it's um, it, it was disgusting, but mm -hmm. it would have been okay if it had a particular political message. And so it was very interesting for me because I was like, I felt like that play had a strong moral message and it was talking, it, it was trying to disturb a complacency about how European wealth um, was built maybe or could be built on terror Um and so I, I, I read those reviews as a teenager and I was, I was like, well, it's a really dangerous thing as a young woman to become a playwright. And I decided I wanted to go out, get myself intellectual armor. And I went off and I read law um, at Cambridge University instead, because I felt that was a vocabulary that would arm me to do politics in the world and to be allowed to have opinions in the world. And I kind of put plays to one side as something that couldn't directly comment on important international affairs. Um, and I love studying law. Like, I really, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I got into political theory. I developed um, a big interest in comparative law. I stayed on. I did a PhD, um, which, I mean, it makes me laugh because this is pre-Brexit. So we believe that Europe was just this kind of process that was going to roll on and on. Um, so I was writing about how those legal systems would integrate. Um, so it's completely irrelevant now with Brexit coming. Um, but so I, I had that sense of diplomacy at that point. I was like, the world is going to get safer. There's this inevitable process of the rule of law rolling out. 
And institutions are the things that are going to keep on pulling people together um, into uh, supranational agreements. Uh, and I went to read my uh, read for the bar in London. And this is where I got my little bit of government experience, my personal government experience. Um, I went to the Law Commission, which is this law reform body uh, in London. And I was a research assistant in a small grotty room uh, working on housing law reform. And it really was a quite dismal experience. It was very worthwhile, but they've been working for 10 years on reforming tenancy agreements, which is when landlords kind of hold on to money. And it was my first experience of being someone who felt quite passionately about things and wanted to change the world, but was just like this minor cog in a bureaucracy. And I I had a boss who felt like he was really woke, but he would tease me and, you know, he would put women down in meetings. So I think that's the first glimmer for this play is that um, the set for the intelligence production here actually brought flashbacks for me because it had these gray carpet tiles that was so recognizable for me from this government job um, and the chairs that are so heavy and um, the lights that kind of buzz. Um, so yeah. it was it was kind of a visceral experience of being back as a low grade person in, in government. Um, but and, and I think it pushed me out of government. I was like, I'm not quite sure what I want to do. I know I want to do something serious with my life, but it's not this. Um, and so I, I went back to academia and I did a, another degree, which was sort of a serial pattern for me for a while, um, in uh, intellectual history. And I was very interested in how people build their thoughts and build their belief systems. I was doing more research on some political philosophers like Hannah Arendt and Michael Oakeshott. And I, I was doing some lecturing, bizarrely, on Byzantine political theory. Um, but yeah, I felt like Liam Page in the play. I just, I had no sense of how to secure a career that would be meaningful to me politically. Um, and and I still had this desire that kept on coming back to write plays. Um, and I realized I didn't want to write things that were only going to be in a small academic journal. I wanted to do something that was collaborative and in which involved a lot of people talking in the room and and would face up to an audience in real time. So I started to write. And then my experience of government became vicarious because I married someone who was working in the British Foreign Service. And he spent a lot of time on the Middle East, Central Asia, counterterrorism. He worked at Number 10. He was going off to meet very difficult people, um, dictators like Gaddafi and Assad. And I think, so that's like the next chunk of where this play came from, is experiencing those conversations secondhand, experiencing the emotion, the kind of really complex sense of talking to people who are very difficult and knowing that you must make progress, but being fully aware of who they are um, and what they can do. Uh, so that's my kind of the government backage, uh, backstory that I, I carried with me. I came to New York in 2012 um, and I was a member of the Jam at New George's, which is this amazing 
mm-hmm. early career performance lab. Uh, and I, I said I wanted to write a global play and I had this uh, idea that I wanted to just work out how you can put as much of the world into a small black box theatre and role play obviously is, a, is an extraordinary way to do that because you can make the storytelling, bring in a second world um, and do a play within a play. And I wanted to reflect on how different the world was from the 1990s when I went in and started studying law. And mm-hmm. there I was doing courses like the New World Order and the growth of the rule of law. And it just didn't feel like that those narratives were true anymore. Um, and I, I was really interested in just like the competing arguments in diplomacy, like people who say stay out, people who say stay out but provide aid, um, people who say go in with a military solution, People who say go in um, with sort of coin, you go in with military solution, but there's aid as well, but it's structured by the military. Um, And then finally, people who say go in and talk diplomatically. Um, And I was really interested in that final option, like people who who believe that you can still go in and turn things around by talking to individuals. Um, And like I suppose the other thing I carry with me from the 90s is the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and that, so the Good Friday Agreement is the agreement helped strongly by the U.S., which brought an end to the Irish Troubles, and was just a huge change in my life because when I grew up in in the U.K., you expected regular mainland bombing campaigns, and it was just a, a really normal part of life to expect. I remember that I was working in England in 2004 and we were shooting something at the what's the big theater in london the old the old vic i guess and um the old vic is a national theater yeah and at one point we're shooting and everyone just stopped and almost like like zombies they just stopped put their things away and just walked outside i'm like what what, what the hell's there's no big announcement made everybody just walked outside and then walked a block away Yep. And finally, I got there. I said, "What is going on?" And they're just lighting up cigarettes and talking. You know, they said, "Oh, it's a bomb threat." That yeah. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't imagine that people were just so, you know, kind of pedestrian about it. Literally, that that could happen. But that was England, so yeah, yeah it was a different experience for you. I, I think it it was very normal. And what was stunning was when it stopped being normal. When a ceasefire was uh, agreed. And uh, George Mitchell, the U.S. Special Envoy, was sent by Bill Clinton to help um, bring the sectarian parties together. Um, so uh, making Sinn Féin talk to the, the Protestant side. Um, and one thing that came that I took away reading about it was that there was this kind of constructive ambiguity that sometimes they use language that they didn't they didn't overdefine it because they hoped that it would give space in the future for peace to come. Um, uh, what did they talk about then? Sorry? So they, they were talking about it, but in like any documents that they drafted and in the legislation that kind of implemented the agreement, they left what, what was called constructive ambiguity. Like some of the terminology wasn't overly defined. Um, because they knew that there was still a long way to travel and it took many years to actually get um, arms decommissioned 
um, by the IRA. So they knew that they might have to tolerate um, a level of greyness for a long time to get to peace. Um, And it struck me that we did get peace and that that change has been very secure in British life. Um, So it's interesting now reflecting on other processes, like, for example, um, you may have seen the New York Times article recently about talking to the Taliban. and oh, that right. yeah, yeah, and that they're hopeful that, again, there might, by talks, they might get to um, a peace agreement. But it felt very similar. Like there was a, we're not quite sure if they agree the same terms at this stage as us. Um so it's like that that fascinates me, the idea that you're talking to people um, and you're going to have to tolerate ambiguity in order to get somewhere. Um, it seems very morally complex to me. Yeah, we don't we don't have we don't have a president that tolerates any, <laughs> any ambiguity right now. I mean, yeah, I, you, you also mentioned that things are changing. I mean, you know, he, Trump has gutted the State Department. Is there a similar um, I mean, there seems to be an over reliance on on you know a military threat as a as a diplomatic incentive is this is it similar something similar happening in england now or are you holding on to your institutions at the state department department of state a little a little better i feel like there's more of an institutional heft to the foreign service the british foreign service um and there's less Beautiful building too i've been there once yeah, it's, it's gorgeous it's gorgeous the but it has like, yeah, yeah it's like, oh my God, this is where they control the world yeah exactly <laughs> that's why i'm like what? i like that building but yeah it's problematic um, yeah it's very pro- very problematic i don't want to yeah imply that colonialism was did anybody any good but go ahead <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, I think the danger, what I'm picking up here at the moment is like, I've always been very interested in these, we send someone in to talk and something happens. And like my instinct is naturally to support the diplomatic solution, but I'm aware that at the moment here, it's almost seen as the shortcut. Um, it's like, it's not about an alternative to a military solution. It's like, we don't want to pay for a military solution. So we will take a shortcut and we so it's not this grand, um, you know, Holbrook going into the former Yugoslavia. It's something much more um, cut rate. Um, and I think that's something that we were exploring at the end of Intelligence, where the the special envoy has a chance to go back out, but she knows that it is compromised, that she might not be in such a heroic role anymore. Like when people would go in and they're having talks, like they'd, they would say, oh, so-and-so, they're, they're having they're having talks. Yeah, I, I can what, – what goes on – and this is interesting because like we're getting to see in this play what goes on inside that, inside that box, right? It's little, tiny, little – what are the, the small victories? What are the small victories in a, in a negotiation as it starts out like that? I mean, you said you have to tolerate a lot of ambiguity, but – how is it? What's going on if, if it's ambiguous? My impression from people we were talking to, and I was lucky with my director, we got to talk to a lot of uh, ex department, ex state department women, um, was that it's all about the relationship building. Um, mm. And I think that's what we were trying to recreate was that you need to connect on a personal level with 
the the other party um and uh that part of that was just by time that by going and talking to people and being serious in your commitment that that in itself would make something happen but i i'm wary of implying that what happens in the play is realistic because i think there's something about the play that is purposely um removed from actual negotiating protocol that it's by looking at the role play by looking at how she was talking the characters talking in the room we're also asking questions about how we form stories out of intelligence and within international narratives um so we were like the role playing tactics come from a whole host of places um so it's not like we oh, sat down yeah. and we're like well, what happened when richard holbrook went in like step by step by step um so some of it for example was they drawn real actors in there you know? yeah. <laughs> um, bring John malkovich in to play like you know oh, that would be nice <laughs> yeah. um no so like some of the tactics are from what it's like being a woman in the room um and like advice you get like read the politics in the room um before you go in um mm. and know where the conflict is in the room are things that I, I think feel very recognizable to women watching the play um how would women identify with how how would would women watch this play and connect with it or find it more relatable than men obviously it's all it's an all woman cast but i'm just wondering about that that decoding and that understand, is this something that women probably have to deal with more than men is, is, you know, decoding men or, or even, or even violent men. Is there something that, that goes on that um, men might overlook or don't have to do? Oh, I think that's such an interesting question. Um, I don't have, it's not something that men comment to me about at the end of watching the play but I do get a lot of women commenting on how how they can identify with the the projection of confidence in the room at the same time as modulating your tone and your behavior depending on whether you're talking to someone who's more senior or junior to you or whether you're talking to a male superior um I, I don't know. I mean, maybe do you feel that you code yourself when you're talking to other people in a work environment? Oh, absolutely. I'm terrible at it. I mean, I'm just really facile. I have to watch myself because I will, you know, you know, what is it? Rule number one or rule number two? I forget which one it was, but don't, don't become that person. You know, don't, yeah don't become the person don't don't kind of code yourself into that i have to hold myself back from it but i i'd say uh well getting back to the men and women thing i i just felt that um yeah you don't have a lot of men role-playing as women to try to understand how women are feeling about a, situ a situation but i can see where um you know women would would take you know would have to modulate you couldn't just go in acting like 
like a man sometimes or else it would men would find it unsettling yeah for sure i mean and there's definitely like we see in a character there's a vocal change when she's on the phone to a man um at the end of the play it, you can see the the shift and the choice to shift um as a tactic um i think i'm like it's it's hard for me because i'm wary of making it making like kind of universal judgment that the women have to do something different to the men in the room in the way that they handle seniority and difficult political situations. But I think something that seems to have touched a nerve for a lot of women who are watching it is the experience at the moment that different generations of women are, are approaching politics differently um, and that older women are beginning to find that sometimes their views are being questioned by younger women and that they are not as radical to the next generation as they expect and that they are sometimes seen as having been kind of complicit in male cultures in mm. within bureaucracies, within government. Um, and it's kind of a slap in the face, like, hey, I was a pioneer um, and now you're questioning me and saying that I, I've sort of almost become part of the establishment. Um, but... I, what I, I saw that the Democrats with Nancy Pelosi and um, um, Congressman Cortez. Yeah. <laughs> it, that came up when we were in rehearsals and it really was like, wow, we'd already kind of modeled that interaction. And it was one of those strange things where the outside world like really confirms what you found the day before in rehearsal. Yeah. Um, yeah and that's a sort of a condescension one way and rejection the other. But I, I, I hoped that there was something more general within the play that was about storytelling and like a fear we have that we know that telling stories helps us morally, like it helps us to understand the world um, and it helps us give context to our decisions and it gives us empathy and it's impossible really to predict the future, to make decisions without telling ourselves stories internally. But there's that that burden that we have, I think, from contemporary um, thinking, from our worries about diversity um, and our attempts to be more open, that we can tell the wrong stories about people and that we project all the time um, and that a lot of our storytelling is faulty. Uh, so those tactics to me, like the know yourself, don't project that onto someone else, um, when you've gone too far, kind of pull yourself back in, play again, play a different story. We're really like that that contemporary nervousness about um, storytelling and what it does for us politically. Yeah, there's a lot of things I'm thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, almost, I, just, I just want to say I'm so confused. The world is so confusing. Could you help me make sense of this? And that is, is in effect, what 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 this what this play does or or in what in what you do, um, yeah, it is a difficult time. It's a different time now. I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, I'm a white middle aged man, right? And um, I've got to do my homework if I want to tell stories now. I mean, there's my own my own biases and my own you know the way I would see the world or the way I was kind of encouraged to see the world as well also plays into that. Um, I thought it was it was a really fascinating system of well it was an interesting system 
you know, these tactics you had. The first one is more or less know yours. What were those tactics again? To kind of know who you are and then. Yeah. Who are you as you walk in the room? Um, who are you as you walk in the room? Yeah. Right. And there's the, the wonderful speeches that, you know, I'm an American. I'm post-Post-Cold post War American. Um, but then it's like, and keep that, lock that away because to know someone else, you don't turn them into yourself. Um, and so it's like that, listen, listen very carefully and be aware that everything that you've just said about yourself, you are going to try and project onto the person you're talking to. Um, then there's a third tactic, which never gets actually um, articulated properly. It's like, be aware of your ego um, and don't make it about yourself. Kind of like re- you're relying on adrenaline and you've got to understand that there are bigger processes happening. Um, and then there was, uh, once things are getting very problematic, um, step back, step back, come back to yourself. Um, yeah. and then play again, play someone else. Um, so it's that, that shift in perspective, um, within a story. Yeah. I thought the play someone else was interesting. I mean, even just as an actor, it's like you can become sort of proprietary about your 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 role right and and how things are and how things are but you step back and you play someone else suddenly you realize wow this overall the overall story is what's yeah and and it felt like here we are in a diplomatic situation and the stories have to keep on being told because the events are just coming and there's that so there's that cultural sense we have you know i'm worried like i'm uh, this is the privilege I carry, and I'm worried about telling these stories. But if you're in the State Department, if you're a diplomat and you've actually got to go and engage with people, you don't get any let out. You've got to keep on grappling um, with the narrative. Uh, uh, so th- I think that, that interested me that I had the sense that there's a diplomatic imagination and narratives that are being created about countries overseas and about the people we're talking to. Um, and so it was interesting to bump that up against theater and how we tell stories as actors. Um, I, th- I think I heard something in one of the podcasts you did, I think it was with the former NSA chief or director. Mm-hmm. And there was a phrase, phrase you were saying, Oh, intelligence is storytelling. Like you go in with the story from the intelligence and it was, wow, that really hit me. Um, like how interwoven into uh, decision-making storytelling is. Um, yeah, he's just, yeah, just General Hayden said, he said, we are the storytellers. And that struck me as well. I thought, oh, that's right. I mean, that just happened a few days ago. All the you know prominent members of the American intelligence community kind of went out and said, look, the, the Iranians are making nuclear weapons. The Koreans are going to continue to pursue theirs, right? And they just said a, a narrative that's completely different from what, um, you know, Trump, Trump is kind of throwing out there. But yeah, I guess you deal do with, you deal with com- competing narratives as well in a diplomatic situation, I'd imagine. But it's one thing to like read a book and to, or to watch a movie and to say, oh, that's what this is. That's who those people are. But to actually play someone or try to be that other person you're negotiating with and, and really, I mean, that's, really humanizing someone or at least trying to but you're you said your husband um is in this is in um the foreign service did he ever i don't know you probably can't reveal this but 
did, where did the idea of uh, role-playing come in and being a, a device in this? In the play. So he's Would you call it a device? What is it? What, what yeah. So he's no longer in the, the Foreign Service. So um, he's with me here in New York. Um, so I was interested in the training when we were talking to women in the State Department. They were talking about mm-hmm. some of the limitations of the training they had, that they did this A100 course, which is a six-week course at the start of being a Foreign um, Service officer. Um, and they missed situational training they wanted situational training and it made me think how diffuse role play is across training forms normally i think they do that in the test in the test for the diplomatic service though uh-huh. they do a they do, they do simulated role play and say here's the situation you have 24 hours and ten thousand dollars you need to figure out a way to and everyone has to role play it yeah so um, we introduced it as a device into the play, not as like a realistic device. We were not saying this is what people do, but it was a way of making explicit what people are doing in their heads. And it was a way of making explicit that kind of imaginative um, dialogue we have with the outside world. We actually like, okay, well, you're going to role play the people that you're talking to. We're going to see a lot more of the assumptions that you're making Um and but we can also see more happening with a character if they're role playing, because role play in itself is a way of um, processing trauma, um, and it's used in therapeutic settings as drama therapy. So right. it's fantastic for a character on stage in front of us to have to do that work and to process. Um, what they've done repeatedly, and we begin to see how small shifts in the story um, have different implications. Uh, and But I, I like the way it could also tap into role play as simulation, like we know from military training, that you can predict future consequences um, and work out what might happen in different scenarios. Um, I used to work it out for my, to my ex. I always, we, we had these meeting set up where we were going to discuss visitation. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I remember just being uh, so racked up about it. I, I was so nervous about it that I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to just kind of write down a scene as to how I think it would go down. So I would kind of write it out, right? I say this, she says this, I say this, and then I kind of get carried. I mean, it ended up being a pretty good scene. Uh-huh. And I'd read this and then we'd go in for, you know, this meeting, you know, I would sort of, it was almost like I was two or three weeks into the run already. You know, I was like, oh, uh-huh. this is I'm a little more relaxed about it. But I was using, that was using role playing. It was more like, a, it wasn't really for entertainment. It was, I need something to get me f- from here to here. It had a real purpose. You said it's used for uh, trauma as, as well. Um, I don't know. Are there any other uses for role playing that you know of? Well, we know it from, as you mentioned in acting with the improv, um, where it's fantastic because it actually can create the whole scene for you. So you go in and one actor makes an offer and the other uh, participant is meant to accept. And the offer keeps on adding in elements of reality um, and you have to take that. Um, if you block the offer, you're gagging, you're making it comic. 
Right. Can't um, say no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you're meant to really just say yes and. And so you respond and and you add another element of reality. Um, and so you create the world in front of you. So um, role play within. Groundlings, it was yes and. And you could add um, some sort of character thing. You could add uh, an emotion. You could add. Um, information as long as it wasn't playwriting, they'd call it. <laughs> Don't yeah. playwright in your improv. Just you Yeah, so it was a little bit naughty of me because I wrote a play about improvisation and I actually scripted it. Um, so there's, I don't know. So in, kind of in the development, so the actors can't say, well, you know, we improv this part. You know, no, I mean, I gained a huge amount of them. I was working with uh, fantastic actors for this run, um, Rachel pick up uh Amelia Pedlow and Calissa Brewster and um they they are amazing like the intelligence they brought into the role plays was extraordinary and but it was a really hard ask for them because at the start of the role plays the women are meant to be bad so you're asking an actor can you act someone acting badly so that we can see the progression of them learning how to role play um and that it's actually a really hard thing to ask someone to act badly to be. Um, so did you did you do any improvisations at all, just to kind of see how it would go? Or I, I or, didn't with the actual It's she, a lovely <laughs> idea. I, like I actually I did improvise with my husband the final phone call. I was like, mm-hmm. could you just if I gave you this scenario, you're going to get a presidential offer um, to go in and do a deal. Could you just go into the room? And I'm going to just record what you would say, because I just want to hear the kind of patterns of uh, like compliments as well as like pushback. Um, and that was fascinating for me that to then write off um, a form of bureaucrats uh, speech patterns. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, and the, the physicality of the role plays is entirely from the actors and from just chase, the director's uh, staging. So, the finger snap was that sort of a? Did you put that in, or did they come up with this? It's kind of an interesting Pavlovian. Aha! Uh-huh, the snaps—they were really tough. I like—I—I I did write them in, and then I felt very bad because if you—I so just want to mention one of her lead character, the Sarah McIntyre. Whenever something good happens when she's talking with these, um, I don't know, diplomats, I, I suppose she would snap her fingers like, "Oh, good idea!" Like it was a habit. That she had. That was scripted, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, they're scripted and they're like half snaps and full snaps. And they're like, how far in or out of reality are we? But yeah. they rely on the theater not having a really dry atmosphere. Um, and it, it's like keeping uh, your fingers humid enough or moist enough to do oh, right. on demand through a play. Like I didn't I didn't know what a huge ask it was. And Rachel Pickup is amazing at it. Um, but yeah, they... They are very demanding. Coding and decoding is I. I, I was since I was a kid. I never really wanted to be an actor. I, I wanted to be an athlete. You know, at one point I wanted to be a lawyer and some of the things. But one of the things that really came easy to me was impersonations. I I started thinking about that later. I don't really do it as much anymore. But it usually came out of a real fascination with someone. Like some people I can impersonate. Some people I can't. If I worked at it, maybe. But sometimes it would. Uh, it would be somebody I, I really wanted to understand them, mm-hmm. you know? So I would actually try to 
think of the way they thought. I mean, the classic one is a, is a, you know, everyone does it as like a Christopher Walken or something, you know, mm-hmm. like what do people want? What is going on in his head? What do you want? So you kind of assume the physicalities and the way they speak and the patterns they speak, hoping that somehow that'll inform your thought. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, I did it when I was in the military. I would impersonate some leaders or company commanders or, or whatever, just to sort of, just to kind of understand them. And in a way, it's you're sort of taking a person's, you're kind of, but in so doing, you're kind of taking something from them. You're kind of taking their essence. When they see you do it, uh-huh. you don't ever want to show somebody your impersonation of them because it's never good, right? It's uh-huh. if they're amused, they're amused, but you're basically, you're like, look, I'm going to take your house and live in it for a while and see how you feel about it. But I thought that was, an, that was, this has something to do with, you know, coding and, and decoding and, and your, your rule of not to be someone. So, I, but it seemed like there was a, for me, there was a little bit of a contradiction is, is that wanting to sort of be someone, mm-hmm. right? It, it usually came from a desire to, which now I think maybe I should even examine that a little bit more, but you kind of wanted to understand them. Mm-hmm. But you're saying in doing that, you have to not take on their voice. You have to be careful, very careful how you are how you do it yeah well but i think it is that that tension that we know that actually you do learn something by storytelling i mean the whole we know that there is value through theater we know that putting mm-hmm. people on stage and seeing them in front of us embody other people's words has some kind of immense value at the same time as we know the dangers of that mm-hmm. um and I think it's a debate within theatre that's very immediate is making sure that we're widening out the pool of on stage and whose stories are being told and who's writing those, who's scripting those stories and who's embodying those stories. But we don't ever deny the value of theatre and seeing stories told live. But one other thing before, before I get off the impersonation kick is, um, um, and thank you for not asking me to do any impersonations too. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but is, uh, but in, in, in taking on someone else's voice, this is what's strange for me is in taking on someone else's voice. I'm also, if you go full on impersonation, you're actually doing part two, I think, which is creating that other voice. So for me, is it doing an impersonation in a weird way? It's not a way for me to kind of, it's a way for me to sort of understand someone, but it's also, I'm also creating a voice that separates that person mm-hmm. yeah. from me. And it also, but in doing that full impersonation, it kind of releases me from taking little bits of it. Mm-hmm. But I can say is remain as myself. I think you probably have a, a much better understanding than I do because you've been an actor and, um, You've really oh. experienced. There's there's a point I wanted in the play where the role playing slips into full on storytelling, um, and it's a point where there's a a really terrible scream, and I think the the storytelling starts to have a truth to itself. It's not just about learning through embodying another role. It's not trying to imagine what it'd be like to go into this situation. It's not processing anything. They just literally, for that moment, are those women and those soldiers. Um, and that was interesting to me, that there, there is something, there was a shift in the play at that point. Um, Absolutely. But I and I think that was probably the most, 
stage directions I'd ever seen written for describing a scream of the stages of, of that, of that scream of what the character was experiencing. There were, I think four different, there were four different stages of a scream. And it's a person experiencing an atrocity or watching an atrocity as well. How, how was that compared to as it was written as to, was it any different when it, once it was staged? It's just physically horrific. Um, and, uh, so Amelia Pedlow, who plays Paige, is extraordinary. Like she actually honors those stage directions and it's a very long differentiated scream. Um, and I have to stop myself when I'm in the theater each night. Um, I have to stop myself putting my fingers to my ears at the point where I know it's coming. I just have to say, I have to honor the moment. And, um, it, it's like a gut punch every, every time. I hear it. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful to her for bringing that to the play. I think it's an enormous ask from her and she is extraordinary in the way she doesn't let us know it's coming and then completely goes there. Um, uh, and I, I was very worried about what it would be like to put such a scream on stage and um, it was an important decision not to end the play there. I was like, I wanted to let the character do that, to let us go there, to experience the violence viscerally. But it was very important to me that we then see the characters kind of pull back into their intellectual capabilities um, and to process that scream afterwards. Uh, you obviously go to step four. Well, <laughs> yeah. Tactic at that point yeah, yeah. to step out of it mm. um yeah i almost want to drive the seven eight hours down to see this place it's the last weekend that is that is playing yeah we, we right close on, on sunday um so we've got like five more performances uh and it, it's been amazing the atmosphere every night is is really wonderful um but it's so cold mm. we'll have to see if if anyone makes it out tonight um you might freeze on the walk there yeah, I'll try to get this episode out as soon as I can to just or at least or at least do some more promotion for it because um yeah, I thought it was I thought it was cool that you did a play, you know, based on yeah, it's, so many so many plays are about families or, you know, Augusta Sage County is a great is great theater, but it's also um you know, we don't always have to be in a country home in Ireland to understand, you know, uh, interpersonal dynamics and how, how intense they can be. And I think bringing that into the world stage, like you said, I wanted, I wanted a play that was, that was, was global. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I think that's wonderful and I want to see it. When can I see it again? You're going to bring it to Los Angeles? Or gonna... I would love to bring it to Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what the forward life will be for the play um, mm -hmm. and how, like I've always felt like I've had to be on top of the news cycle with it, that I started writing under the Obama administration and then I uh, had to make a choice. Like, is this going to stay as like almost a history piece or am I going to address the State Department personnel cuts um, and the changes in funding and the changes in diplomacy around the world. And I was like, yeah, the play has to keep on growing and has to stay current, even though America is the only country ever named or referenced. Um, it has to keep on fitting 
the growth of American diplomacy. Um, so I, I don't know if, what what rewrites would be necessary if it came back in a few years. Well, I thought it was pretty, I, well. You get an idea that there is that there's a shift. You know, obviously that there's a there's there's a shift in politics in the, yeah. in the play, which I thought was which I thought was just enough. It almost seemed like the the I remember auditioning for J T Rogers' play Blood and um, Blood and Gifts. Uh huh. I remember thinking, oh, this is an interesting background of you know what, what the great game was. You know, the the politics between you know Pakistan the UK, the United States and the Russians, you know, that, that play was a little more like a watch out. This is going to happen. Yeah. That's to say that I, I felt, I felt there was just enough, you know, politics and current events in there. So I guess any, anything else you wanted to add, anything else you're working on now or. Um, well, I'm, I'm shifting gears completely. I'm going back to the Byzantine era because I've been working on this um, massive for, for opera cycle um, with a composer, Grace Oberhofer, and a director, Colette Robert. We've you can say the word, tetralogy. (laughs) (laughs) Tetralogy, yeah. Um, And that's all about these amazing Byzantine empresses, Irene, uh, Euphrosyne, and Maria, and how they formed a new form of um, female imperial rule uh, helped by the eunuchs um, and... Uh, it's been a very long-running project. We've got a residency at the New Ohio Theatre, and so we'll be bringing play to um, to the Ice Factory Festival in uh, this summer, and then staging play three Princopo in uh, 2020. Um, so I'm shifting gears, and I'm back listening to arias and. <laughs> um, working out how music flows through scenes and how to set up the politics while keeping the flow and there's choreography. So it's, it's an enormous intellectual and creative puzzle. I really love it. Yeah. That sounds like a challenge. I mean, you, you said that the Byzantine empresses that was, was it more peaceful back then with, with women? In <laughs> no, not at all. So Irene ends up killing her own son to hold on to power and, um, they're in the middle of the iconoclastic wars. So it's uh, Irene. The Sopranos, like the Sopranos then, basically. <laughs> I, I mean, it nearer maybe Game of Thrones. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but uh, they, yeah, they were facing entrenched conflict and entrenched um, religious differences and trying to find new ways to kind of subvert uh, established forms of power with the military and with the church. Um, so it's it's definitely not, more relaxed is it an opera it's well they're choral plays so they have um text and music and they're they're for 12 um plus female identifying performers with instrumentation so the first one was a cappella, um and the next mm. one has uh kind of bass and uh cello so they're they're big very big sound pieces so what got you involved with that with that group the byzantine the, the choral. choral Byzantine Choral was it again? I'm sorry. It's the Byzantine Choral Project. So um, this this grew out of the jam again. It was another collaboration um, from this uh, women's group, theatre group in New York. Um, and I always wanted to write about these empresses because they fascinate me just as political figures. Um, and we would challenge: do something outside your comfort zone, and 
so we wrote a little bit and it, it became apparent it was uh, a chant. It was choral. So we, we knew we had to collaborate with a composer um, and it's just grown hugely from there. Um, and so we found that like one play wasn't enough. We staged the first one in 2016 um, mm. and we're like, oh, we haven't told the story completely. So there's going to be another play. And then there was another play. And now we know that in total there will be four. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, empresses are interesting. But they, there's, again, there's a, that, that trickiness of telling their story and it's, it's Byzantine history. So like finding this simplified thread through the story is very complex, um, but trying to make them relevant at the same time, like asking people, come and, come and see these plays. They're about women, um, women that you don't know in history. And there's always an implicit promise that it, it speaks to the moment now that these women tell us something about political power now. So it's it's that tension between um, taking a history and forming it into a play that has contemporary relevance is is always tricky, but it, I think it, it really works with these um, empresses. Yeah, I mean, it's not, you can't just do drunk history. Right? You can't no. take your belief, <laughs> our belief system in the present and impose it on there just so it's a little more um, relatable, right? Yeah. Cause they're very, they're very complex women. And there was an extreme violent turn to politics that, um, there was castration was used as a tool and blinding was used as a political tool because if your body was changed, you could not become emperor. You could not hold power. So a way to control your political enemy enemies was to physically change them. Um, and so that is a very difficult uh, element to process for a contemporary audience. Oh, to physically change them. That's it reminds me of the, the I think in one of the role playing things that Sarah was doing is like was touching people. Yeah. And as soon as you touch someone, you might they might want something different. You don't really know. Like what is like the, the physical touch, like what does it what does it do to a person? I mean it's not not even saying that it's 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 sexual, but there's like some sort of physical connection that I think we tend we tend to lose now. But I guess they, back then it was a little worse. I mean, they take your ear or your eye out. You know, it wasn't like here. Let me put my hand on your your forearm and to see how you react in this situation. Helen, thanks so much for uh, for being on the live drop. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you so much for reaching out and letting me talk about a very complex play. I really appreciate it. End of transmission. 